The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kemcaran. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week. Paul Wood delves into the complex background of the Middle East and asks if Iran might have been behind the Hamas attacks on Israel and what might come next. James Heal ponders the great Tory tax debate by asking what is the point of the Tories if they don't lower taxes? and Robin Ashenden on how he plans to introduce his half-Russian daughter to the delights of red buses, beef eaters and a proper full English. First, it's Paul Wood. A little more than a week before Hamas carried out its Operation Al-Aqsa flood, the US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, The Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. Sullivan was expressing a consensus view one apparently shared by the Israeli government. Then came the attacks of last weekend, and as the Israeli president Isaac Herzog said, not since the Holocaust have so many Jews been killed in one day. The surprise attacks have been called Israel's 9-11, its Pearl Harbor, and so the question Israelis are asking is, how could this happen? And of more consequence, perhaps, who was really behind it? Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, denies it was him. In a televised speech, he said, We kiss the foreheads and arms of the resourceful and intelligent designers of the operation. But those who say that the recent great event is the work of non-Palestinians are making miscalculations. Khamenei delivered his speech wearing a Palestinian scarf. There followed some standard rhetoric about what he called the Zionist regime's ultimate defeat. I say that this devastating earthquake has managed to destroy some of the main structures of the oppressive regime's rule, the reconstruction of which is not easily achievable. What happened in Israel is certainly being celebrated in Iran's official media. A cartoon in a government-run newspaper shows a Palestinian boy making the victory sign with his fingers and holding two balloons that read... 1K, a reference to the deaths of over a thousand Israelis. The caption reads, We reached a thousand. But the US government says its intelligence agencies have yet to find proof that Iran planned these attacks. Still, Joel Rayburn, who used to be in charge of Iran policy on the US National Security Council, isn't buying the denials. Iran was the author of the attacks, he told me. Hamas was not an independent actor. He said that Iran's Quds Force, which runs Tehran's foreign military alliances, has continually tightened the reins of control over its proxies and clients, such as Hamas. They would have directed any major initiative, including its timing and its execution. That's the way their relationships operate, and there's no exception. It's been widely suggested that Iran was trying to stop Israel from signing a peace treaty with Saudi Arabia, but Rabin believes it's more nuanced than that. 
He told me that Iran has been trying to build up Hamas to be more like Hezbollah, the force it commands in Lebanon. The US says Iran sends Hamas $100 million a year, but more importantly has instructed Hamas engineers in how to make rockets from common materials like pipes and fertiliser. Rayburn said Iran wanted to be able to threaten Israel in the south with Hamas and in the north with Hezbollah to paralyse Israel and by extension to paralyse the United States. In the absence of a nuclear weapon, he said, Iran needed Hezbollah and its missiles for deterrence, so preserving Hezbollah is a strategic imperative. Rabin went on to say that if Hamas were destroyed in Gaza as Israel intended, that would leave Hezbollah dangerously isolated. That's something the Iranian regime and Hezbollah cannot tolerate. In other words, the war will spread into Lebanon and perhaps Syria, Iran and the wider Middle East too. I spoke by phone to a senior Hamas politician, Osama Hamdan, about the alleged Iran connection. He used to be the Hamas representative in Tehran and coincidentally was photographed there, standing next to the Supreme Leader, the week before the Hamas operation. He stuck to what seems to be the agreed line, denying that Iran was behind the attacks. Iran supported Hamas just as the US supported Israel, he said. It did not dictate. Echoing Hamani's words, he added, All that has been done is our will from the Palestinians. Hamdan called what happened at the weekend a legitimate operation against the Israeli army, adding that videos on social media showed huge moral actions by Hamas fighters. One had told a frightened woman hostage and her two children that we are Muslims and we will not harm you. Another had asked permission before taking food from an Israeli house. What about other videos showing summary executions of civilians? He said, everyone's talking about the blue blood of the Israelis, but no one's talking about the red blood of the Palestinians. This is hypocrisy. He went on, you can't control everything everywhere. You can't control everyone. I'm sorry for what may have happened, but the fact is our people are being killed. That was happening, he said, talking about the summary executions, because of what the Israelis have done. It was a normal reaction. The part about not being able to control everyone revealed something important about the bloodshed at the weekend. Hamdan told me that all of Gaza's militant groups had taken part in the attacks. In fact, a number of civilians from Gaza seemed to have joined in as well, pouring through the fence once it became clear that the Israeli military wasn't coming a do-it-yourself pogrom. The men on the quad bike kidnapping concertgoers from the desert were not wearing uniforms, for instance. As one Palestinian academic put it to me, the sheer scale of the Hamas attack may not have been planned. Things got out of control. They might not have planned for the reaction either. I asked Hamdan if Hamas had, in effect, committed suicide by organising such attacks. No, he said. Israeli governments had promised many times in the past to end Hamas, but they had always failed. They will not break the resistance. What then was the strategy? What were the attacks supposed to achieve? To end the occupation, Hamdan said. There was no need for anyone to be killed if Israel did that. He meant the occupation by Israel of land captured in 1967, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Despite Hamas's founding charter calling for the destruction of Israel, 
Since 2017, the group's stated position has been for a settlement based on the 67 borders. Hamas had been forced to order its attack, he said. Under Netanyahu's government, there was no hope for a Palestinian state. More settlements were being built, more land stolen. The West Bank was being steadily annexed. He said, This means the end of the Palestinian cause. The Palestinians have to act. The Palestinians have to defend themselves. This action at the weekend is to tell everyone there is a Palestinian nation and they are still resisting the occupation. They are seeking to have their freedom and to build their independent sovereign state on their homeland. I spoke about all this with Danny Yatom, a former head of Israel's spy agency Mossad, starting with the attacks on Israel. This is a man whose profession had been to anticipate the worst, to think the unthinkable, but he said over and over how shocked he was. This was not, however, so much a failure of intelligence as a failure to correctly interpret intelligence and to act on it. There were clear signs that Hamas was planning something. In full view of Israeli drones, they carried out an exercise to attack a mock Israeli settlement they'd built in Gaza. The Israeli army even reported that Hamas forces were gathering near the border fence. But the analysis was that Hamas wanted quiet, not least so it could get cash from Qatar. So the intelligence chiefs and the politicians ignored the evidence. Yatom said they did not read correctly the intentions of Hamas. According to Yatom, the attacks also happened because Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had acted deliberately to build up Hamas so as to weaken the PLO, which rules in the West Bank. Sounding at times almost like Hamdan, Yatom said that Netanyahu wanted to make sure there would never be a Palestinian state to stop any possibility of negotiations to annex Judea and Samaria, as Israelis call land west of the Jordan River. So, he went on, Netanyahu allowed money for Hamas to be sent to Gaza and he allowed supplies, especially cement, for aid projects that everyone knew was going to build the infrastructure of Hamas. He wanted to buy silence along the Gaza border. He wanted to buy silence from Hamas. The result was a day of chaos and confusion more horrific than any Yatom had seen in his decades as an intelligence chief and as a soldier. He retired as a major general, and that included the Yom Kippur War. All this could wait for a public inquiry, he said, but now the effort should be, as he put it, to harm Hamas very badly. They slaughtered hundreds of innocent Israelis, women, children, the elderly, babies. No one will be able to forgive these terrorists. It should be painful, it should be severe, so Hamas will not be able to rehabilitate for many, many, many years to come. Every option is on the table. In Jerusalem, the godfather of Israeli strategy, Professor Martin van Creveld, was gloomy about a second front in the north and about the prospect of ever attaining peace based on the two-state solution. The 500,000 Israeli settlers now in the West Bank made that impossible. He told me, 20 years ago, I very much hoped it would happen, but it's too late for that. It will never happen. Never. Never. With members of his own family mobilised, he agreed that Israel seemed doomed never to see the end of war. That did not mean the fighting in Gaza would continue indefinitely. Israel would eliminate Hamas's weapons and then negotiate a ceasefire with them. 
We've been negotiating with Hamas for 20 years, and anyone who says otherwise doesn't know what he's talking about. For all the justified talk of a new and unprecedented phase in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this may be the most likely outcome. If there is to be an earthquake, as Hamani says, it may shatter the wider Middle East, yet leave the conflict at the heart of the region relatively untouched. In the past, stung by some suicide bombing or other outrage, Israelis have spoken of mowing the grass in Gaza, a terrible phrase given the reality of modern weapons. That is what is happening now, albeit on a larger scale, over a longer period, with more blood spilled. To adapt Churchill's famous phrase about the Ulster conflict, once the smoke of battle recedes, the same landscape will re-emerge. The red roofs of the settlers and the minarets of Hamas, the integrity of their quarrel unaltered, however devastating the surrounding cataclysm. That was Paul Wood. Next is James Heal. I didn't come into politics to raise taxes on working people, said the Shenna Chancellor Rachel Reeves in Liverpool this week. Indeed, I want them to be lower. That was a direct electoral tax on Reeves' opposite number, Jeremy Hunt, who has increased the already huge fiscal burden on the British public. If the Tories aren't the party of lower taxes, what are they for? Hunt's more immediate challenge comes from a tax rebellion within his own ranks. His Tory colleague, Sir Jake Berry, the pugnacious leader of the Northern Research Group, has corralled a phalanx of fellow MPs into endorsing a pledge to not vote for any new taxes that increase the overall burden. The future belongs to us, boasted Sir John Hayes, 65, at the New Conservatives' conference rally which launched the scheme. Inspired by the American activist Grover Norquist, Berry's pledge aims to be a marker in the sand and a way to change the culture of constant tax rises, according to one involved. By the time of the next election, taxes are expected to comprise around 37% of national income, no modern parliament has ever seen a bigger increase in taxes. According to the Taxpayers Alliance, 2010-11, Labour's expenditure was 45.7% GDP, while last fiscal year it was 45.6%. Remove the credit crunch and Labour spent an average of 37.6% of GDP every year in office, compared with 41.5% of the Tories pre-COVID. That increase has been covered in large part by tax rises and fiscal drag, as tax thresholds have failed to keep up with inflation and wage growth. The Conservatives are prioritising many low-paid workers out of tax, yet this year's tax burden is the highest since 1949. Unveiling his scheme, Berry coolly told reporters that he wouldn't expect MBs to have the whip removed for voting against tax rises, not least because 33 of us have signed already. Names were collected covertly to avoid alerting the party whips, thinking being, in the words of one organiser, they can't take it away off all of us. The likes of Liz Truss, Priti Patel and Ian Duncan-Smith are among the pledge's advocates. Lord Frost is the latest recruit, and further names will be unveiled in the coming weeks. Parliamentary candidates are urged to sign it too, with those who swear allegiance rewarded with social media-friendly graphics boasting, I sign the tax pledge. Berry's pledge is a warning shot in the battles that are set to dominate the remainder of 15 months of this parliament. When the party conference is over, Labour retains its 20-point poll lead. Tory hopes now rest on the King's speech, the autumn statement, and thereafter a probable spring budget. A light legislative agenda is anticipated to maintain the focus on Rishi Sunak's five priorities and minimise Labour's chances for additional amendments. The focus of most Tory dis- internal discontent, therefore, is likely to be directed at the Chancellor, who will find himself once again under pressure to cut taxes. Hunt is outwardly determined to resist such calls, at least until the economic conditions improve. He prefers to focus on the problems of business investments and productivity, 
alongside efforts to get thousands off out-of-work benefits. The deterioration of credit markets in 2022 and 2023 has shifted the debate on deficits and on both spending and taxation. Markets became more cautious about lending to governments than they have been since the financial crash of 2008, and interest rates have risen dramatically. Hunt fears that tax cuts risk fueling the inflation that remains three times higher than the Bank of England's target. Any benefit will be wiped out instantly, argues one ally. It's an argument that Hunt expects to have at length with parliamentary colleagues across different regions, factions and caucuses over the next five weeks. His inflation priority is shared by his next-door neighbour. So in lockstep are Hunt and Sunak, who have been dubbed by some of the Treasury, Chancellor 1 and Chancellor 2. The challenge of the Treasury whips is how to stop tensions in the tea rooms over tax from spilling out into the open. Earlier this year, some MPs on the Tory right mulled voting against the Global Minimum Corporation Tax and the Finance Bill. This was avoided, but various tax pledge could raise such questions again if the burden of taxation rises in the final budget of this Parliament. Among those agitating for a reduction in the tax burden, there are splits as to how to achieve it. Take the free market Conservative growth group, whose ranks have swelled to some 60 MPs. Its leaders, Randall Jayawardena and Simon Clark, were staunch trussites, but it divides on abolishing inheritance tax. Chawanna views the death tax as anti-family, but Clark would prefer to cut taxes on personal income. There's a levelling up angle to all of this. Chawanna sits for leafy North East Hampshire, where many families are affected by the inflated property prices of South East England. But Clark represents Redwall, Middlesbrough, where far fewer households reach the £325,000 threshold for inheritance tax. The debate exists within government too. Michael Gove has flirted with the merits of a wealth tax to reduce the burden on working people. Should Hunt decide to cut taxes, his choice of priorities will give a glimpse into the balance of power within the party. Tax is a topic some Tory MPs are happy to spend much time debating. Spending cuts for another matter. One MP from the 2019 take, now a minister, points to the manifesto they reacted on. That was all about expanding the state, more doctors, more nurses, more police officers, but it was incredibly popular. There is no public mandate to slash public services. This is the conversation the Tory party ducked last summer. How do you cut tax while maintaining the expending levels? A veteran of the 2010 intake contrasts the political climate now with that of the coalition era. Back then you had ambitious MPs making the case for cuts day in, day out. Who wants to argue for austerity now? On tax and spend, the challenge for the Tories remains the same as it was 13 years ago. Exactly how big should the British state be? The future of the party is likely to belong to whoever can convincingly articulate an answer to that question. That was James Heal. And finally, here's Robin Ashenden. My nine-year-old half-Russian daughter has arrived in England for the first time since she was a baby. As she knows almost nothing about British culture, apart from Peppa Pig and Willy Wonka, my job is to put together a week-long programme before she goes back to Italy, where she currently lives with her mother, my ex-partner. They were living in Russia, but left following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Ideally, my daughter will go home enthused about all things Union Jack and wanting a lifetime more. But where do I start? First, there's the question of food. I shall insist on her trying a Sunday lunch, something with bread sauce or stuffing, preferably both, and plenty of gravy. There'll be an English breakfast too, though I'll expect some resistance. Black pudding, which you must learn to love, shall be kept firmly at the back of the fridge during this first ever fry-up. I shan't expect much credit for baked beans. Even bean-obsessed peoples, like the Spaniards, spit on our garish, sugar-heavy way of serving them. I'll want her to try crumpets with honey and scones with clotted cream and jam. The great Elizabeth David said roasts and jams were among the few things the English were good at. We will eat fish and chips straight from their wrapping on a blustery East Anglian seafront. 
Then there's the world of English chocolate, of great interest to a nine-year-old. Bounties and Mars bars are known internationally, but she's never tried Revels or Fry's chocolate cream, peppermint arrows or crunchy bars. These are the things I want to pass on, far more than the music of Elgar or the designs of William Morris. In Cambridge, I will take her punting. In Newmarket, we'll watch the horses galloping over the heath at dawn. London will need a little more thought. There are things I ought to do with her and things we'll probably end up doing with a feeling of truancy. Into the first category go open-top buses, beefeaters, the changing of the guard and the Natural History Museum. The second involves introducing her to Peking Duck, musicals, Hamleys and ice cream served in establishments with marble tabletops and the odd Grecian pillar. We'll have a walk down Burlington Arcade, which may be a mere hop, skip and jump to adults, but feels as long as the M25 if you're a kid. And up German Street, that retail museum of classic English style. I hope that as we trot between all these places, the unavoidable reek and grind of London will teach her a little bit about capital life. But so many of the actual textures of Britishness, as I've experienced them, are incommunicable to my daughter and would doubtless bore her. Knowing who Victoria Wood or Julie Andrews are, for instance, or why Tom Baker was the best doctor in Doctor Who. The pleasures of washing up while listening to Desert Island Discs on Radio 4. Why James McAvoy is to be celebrated and James Corden deplored. The middle-of-the-road comfort of meeting in a John Lewis cafe on a wet weekday afternoon. Or why pubs are so much nicer without windows you can see through. I could fill several notebooks with such examples, all of them unteachable to a child who has grown up elsewhere. What I really want to do is just make her warm to Britain and let her see that this could, if she wanted, be her home. With two passports, there's always a choice. I want her to understand that she can have blinis with red caviar or baps with chroma crab, a holiday in Sochi or on Sky, and that along with the incense-wafting Russian Orthodox Church, as the musty sea of E-variety, with its bottom-chastening pews, all things bright and beautiful, and the Book of Common Prayer. Of course, whatever package I put together will give her a view of British life about as authentic and contemporary as who will buy in Lionel Bart's Oliver. Should my daughter decide to settle in London one day, she'll probably be forced into a flat share in Zone 4 and shop at Aldi and Primark like the rest of us. It would be just as instructive, and perhaps better parenting, to sit with her on a crowded tube which grinds to a half-hour halt. Alternatively, we could get thrown off a bus because the route has inexplicably terminated early. Afterwards, we'd be nearly run over by a pavement cyclist, have an altercation with an XL bully owner, and snack on doner kebabs which aren't much more than rock salt bound together with lamb fat. There's usually an abyss between the life we dream of and the one we can afford. I shall just have to warn her to mind the gap. And that was Robin Ashenden ending this week's edition of Spectator Out Loud. If these articles have left you wanting more, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran. Thanks so much for listening, and please do join us again next week.